I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, and welcome everyone to History Dweebs. I'm Tim, and today's topic is on Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, one of the... um, leading silent film actors of the early 20th century and famous comedian who also was involved in Hollywood's first major, uh, I think you would say first major uh, scandal. And so we're going to talk about that. But before we do, let me introduce uh, my co-host here, the incomparable uh, debonair and all-around nice guy, Colonel Charles Beauregard Hawk Waters III, affectionately known as the Southern Gentleman. How are you, Colonel? Well, I'm wonderful. Thank you for such a for such a kind introduction, Timmy. Well, you know, I, I always try to give you a, a very good introduction, but sometimes when you know who is here, it makes it difficult. She wants to chime in and she says negative things. But and you, you, you listeners out there, you might be sitting there with a smile on your face, thinking, "Oh, I don't have to put up with an hour of the devil this time." That's right. Brandy is not here today. She will be here on our next podcast, but Brandy is. I think she's uh, worshiping Satan today. She's actually Brandy is under house arrest. She has a ankle bracelet on. Oh, I didn't. know She will be able that. to join us on our next podcast. Hopefully, young Brittany is. Uh, I think she's she, finishing up that twelve step. Yeah, I think she's on step fifteen of the twelve step. Uh, have you got an apology where she makes amends? Uh, not yet. I'm I waiting, have not yet either. I'm waiting for that. I am waiting for one too. Uh, what that's like uh, one of the twelve steps is that the person has to make amends for all the harm they've caused others. Yeah. And I, I keep waiting. So maybe I know, set an entire day aside for the well, girl to make amends with me. She maybe so, the problem is that she's stuck on that step. She's going that, around, that could be. You know, she's she, got a lot of. She's she trying of, to remember. The girl drinks a little bit. She don't remember what she, she did all the she time. Does and then, you know she sends a lot of drunk texts. <laughs> She absolutely does. We got a couple shout-outs we'd like to give today, Timmy. There's been some people leaving some nice comments uh, on our page. And, and one, and, and I want to get this right because I'm, I want to say Anna. It's just with one N, S. So you don't think it's Anna? Anna, Anna. It's okay. it's really tough when you, when you just get the spelling. But I'm going to go with Anna. It's A-N-A. Yeah. And it could be Anna. I mean, there's... She left a very nice comment for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's from she's from uh, Texas, the great state of Texas, where I've only been one time. I've been down to San Antonio, um, to the Riverwalk, seen the Alamo, which is a. You ever been to the Alamo? 
No, I've been to Dallas, I've been to Houston, and I've been to El Paso. The Alamo is a very, very strange thing because you you hear about it all the time, Mm -hmm. and it's it's very small. It's Mm -hmm. a small, you know, it's very small, and it's in the middle of the right near the river walk, so everything's built up around it. You you always expect it to be out in the middle of the desert, and it's... Kind of like here and over the Rhine, the right. Alamo's right here. And, right in the old town. Yeah, what I took away, you know, what, what I just could not believe, I'd always been fascinated by the Alamo, and, and I could not believe it was so, it was the size it was. Yeah, you know, but much like Gettysburg, you know, yeah. I went to Gettysburg and it was the same way. I went to Graceland and it was <clears> the same way. I was expecting, you know, uh, Graceland, of course, where Ellis was born, uh, Alice, not where he was born, but where he lived. Um, and I was expecting this huge... Uh, opulent uh, yeah. um, mansion, and it, it it was nice and all. But it's basically an upscale suburban house. Yeah, is yeah, what it, it is. Huge. Yeah. With with some crazy ass furniture but, in it. Yeah, uh, it was kind of crazy. And Anna, we, thank you very much for your kind comments. Thank you very. And we also had a very nice one from Celine C in Waverly, Michigan. Now, Celine, we did kind of creep your Facebook page a little bit to find out where you're from because we did not want to give you last name um, out over the air. Yeah. So she's from Waverly, Michigan. And I will tell you, Timmy. Now this, you know, Michigan is my favorite state. It is. Um, I know. You vacation there every summer. Every summer, I, we find a cabin on the lake, Lake Michigan, and it, it truly, it's the prettiest place that I've ever been in the country. Um, I love that place. So Celine, Selena, um, we appreciate your we appreciate your feedback. And like I said, even if it's negative. Um, yeah, hers was positive. Hers was positive, um, but we definitely appreciate it. We, we, yeah. it's, it's nice to hear because um, I do this for free. Um, Timmy's making some money off of it, I I'm believe. I'm not but, making a dime. Um, you have the IRS all over. <laughs> I am not making a dime off of it. So, so thank you very much. Yeah, and you make a good point because that's kind of our pain. I mean, this is kind of our 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 what we get out of this is we get comments. That's what we like. We like feedback from the uh, listeners, either positive or negative, but we prefer positive, of course. But um, when we get a uh, some feedback on iTunes or on Facebook about one of our podcasts, we automate we quickly text each other about it. So if you think you're, you know, you're making a comment and no one's reading it, you're wrong. We're all over it. As soon as we get a comment, we are sharing it with each other. So if you like our podcast, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a comment on iTunes, a review on iTunes, because the more of those we get, the easier it is for potential listeners to find us on iTunes. So that's what we really stress. But if, you, if not, if you want to leave us a comment on our Facebook page, we'd love that too. Um, just look up History Dweebs on Facebook. Um, but again, if you could take a couple minutes, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave us a message. Um, totally free. Uh, only takes a minute, but it means so much to us. It does. You know, we spend we do these shows, and like you said, we're, doing, we're not getting paid. And, and we spend, you know, each show I'm spending a good 15, 20 minutes researching and preparing. <laughs> um, 20 minutes. Yeah, 15, 20 minutes researching and preparing. Well, you have so much, you know, you have so much knowledge already. Yeah, I, I just want to make sure that I got things, right. you know. That, and now, now for Brandy, every it's always new. I mean, it's like she's well, with, reading a newspaper. With Brandy, Brandy's like a newborn baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> her brain is, is, she's much like a blank slate. Um, 
So every time we do, we a, have to get these. We have to get these uh, shots in at her while she's not here. Because oh, because she would shank us if she uh, were yes, here. Yes, yes, she's a dangerous danger. woman. She is very dangerous. But it, it, she's out uh, at home worshiping Satan, and well, she and on the ankle bracelet. On that, yeah, she's got an ankle bracelet on for multiple multiple felonies, I'm sure. But anyway, she'll be joining us uh, on our next podcast. But let's get in. Let's talk about. Uh, well, you got to say, give a shout-out to my mom. If oh, you of know, course, we're going to give a shout-out to, to Dottie Scott. Dottie, we, we actually, and, and the truth be told, we do these <laughs> we do these podcasts truly to just entertain Dottie. That's, I mean, that's what we do. <laughs> For anyone else that listens. <laughs> Everybody uh, else is a other, bonus. The uh, other 13,000 people are listening. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we, we, lo- we love it. We're glad you're listening. We, but do, we really listen do this to uh, entertain Dottie because she is a, uh, she's a, she's a wonderful follower. She's a wonderful supporter. She's a, and, and occasionally, you know, I'll get very, you know, me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I, 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 I we we did an experiment one time because they were joking about me that I could put up a picture that made no sense whatsoever, <laughs> and I put up a picture of a sign going down the steps, and I forget what it said. It just said steps here. No, please please use handrail. Please use handrail, and I believe we got about sixty likes on that. Yeah, um, comments, and comments, and interpreting it. <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. And uh, but I get very excited when Dottie leaves a message on my Facebook page yeah. when she comments or whatever. I get very well, excited. She was uh, she was in total agreement with you on the Jesse James podcast. She she said that she thought that uh, he had no idea that they were going to kill him or he would never put his gun down. So. I said, okay, you always agree with the colonel. So thank you. for We, we, we appreciate your support, Dottie. You're a lovely woman. You ra- uh, you went somewhere wrong with Timmy. I don't know what you did with him. but Yeah, well, he, he, I didn't end up a serial killer yet. It reminds me of the old Merle Haggard song, Mama Tried. Yeah. But she, Mama she Tried. So let's, um, let's talk about Fatty Arbuckle, shall we? Let's do that. Okay, so Roscoe, I love that name, Roscoe. Roscoe Conkling Fatty Arbuckle. Uh, was an American silent film actor, comedian, director, and screenwriter. He was one of Hollywood's biggest stars in the early uh, 20th century. Um, He mentored uh, such future stars as uh, Charlie Chaplin and actually discovered uh, Buster Keaton and Bob Hope. So he, um, besides his physical appearance, he was big in Hollywood. Um... And this was the silent movie era. The silent movie era. He, he was a silent movie star in the 1910s and 1920s. Uh, he soon became the highest paying, one of the highest paying actors in Hollywood. In 1920, he signed a, a contract with Paramount Pictures for a million dollars, which is equivalent to about uh, over $13 million today. So, I mean, that was big money, a million dollars in 1920. Uh, between um, so he he was a big, pretty big star. We're going to talk about his life, but he became uh, infamous, I guess, because he got involved in um, a scandal in Hollywood. Like I, we mentioned earlier, probably the first big Hollywood scandal, uh, and it really ruined his career. Um, we're going to get it's it's kind of a sad story. We're we're going to get into it, and it involves the death of a young lady. Uh, Virginia Repay. Um, but anyway, let's talk a little bit first, though, about um, Fatty and give you some background on him. Um, 
fatty. Well, he wasn't born fatty. That wasn't his name when he was born. I wonder uh, if he was a large child. I he was a large t- child. Uh, Roscoe <coughs> Arbuckle was born in Smith Center, Kansas on March 24th, 1887. He was one of nine children born to Molly and William Goodrich Arbuckle. At birth, he weighed in excess of 13 pounds. Now, since both of his parents were of slim build, uh, his father did not believe Roscoe was his child. So that created a life, some lifelong friction between his father and himself. Um, and this disbelief of him being his son led to the, uh, the father naming him Roscoe. He named him after a politician, a no, notorious philanderer, who he just simply hated, a Republican senator by the name of Roscoe Coughlin of New York. So he named him Roscoe Coughlin Arbuckle. So imagine no. that, your father naming you after is someone that he just cannot stand. Be like you naming one of your child... Ted Cruz or something. Well, yeah, I would never name one of my children Ted Cruz, and, and I find that interesting because what did the kid have to do with anything? He didn't do anything wrong. Well, but you know, I mean, I guess he represent. He was, you know, if right. you believe, but you know, two two uh, two skinny women could have a have a sure. large child well, or skinny sure. couple. I'm t- skinny sure. women. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, two skinny women probably should couldn't. Well, yeah, that'd be could. hard. Yeah, it'd be hard for any woman to give birth to a 13 pound child. Yeah. No. But, uh, so the birth was traumatic for Molly, <laughs> and it resulted in. Her, well, I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> it resulted in her having chronic health problems, and it contributed to her death just 12 years later. So, so you got the child born who. Um, you know, and it would be like your wife giving birth, you know, to I guess uh, someone of another race or something, and 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 you're questioning the child being your own. Then you got the fact that she had complications, which led to her health problems, that led to her death, and so you can imagine this strained relationship between him and his father even more. Uh, when Arbuckle was two years old, um, the family moved from Kansas to Santa Ana, California. And the thing about uh, Arbuckle, even though he was a large child, he was very, very agile, and he was actually a pretty good athlete, and he had a wonderful singing voice. Um, at the age of eight, his mother encouraged him to perform on stage uh, at a... Um, talent show in Santa Ana, and um, he did, and took pretty good reviews. He enjoyed performing, continued on performing, uh, until his mother's death in 1899, when he was only 12 years old. At that point, when his mother died, his father, I said again, you know, with these questions about paternity and the fact that he, he his birth led to complications, even though it was 12 years later, that took the life of his mother. His father uh, treated him very harshly, and after his mother died, he refused to support 12-year-old Fatty. Um, so uh, Fatty, I should probably call him Arbuckle. I feel bad calling him Fatty, but Fatty got a job working odd jobs in a hotel as a young child, uh, and when he worked, he had a habit of singing, and he was overheard by a customer who was a professional singer. Then that customer invited uh, Fatty Arbuckle to perform at an amateur 
talent show. Now, this is back at the turn of the century when they were, you know, they were at Vaudeville. There's all these traveling, uh, different traveling um, shows going from town to town, and they had all these talent shows. You didn't have TV. You didn't have, you know, motion pictures at that point. Didn't have no Xbox. No Xbox. Couldn't play no Xbox. No Couldn't no, po- no podcast. No podcast. Couldn't get on a World Wide Web. Could not. So they had these talent shows. And, and so um, Fatty signed up for a talent show. And um, the show consisted of uh, the audience judging acts by either clapping or jeering. Um, probably like when they're listening to our podcast. <laughs> for a lot it's of mostly jeer- jeering. Mostly yeah. jeering, yeah. Especially when Brandy's When talking. the devil's yeah. talking. Well, I, you know what? I want, I want wonder this. Because I know I do it, and and, I, and I've caught Renee doing it. Um, fast forward and past the devil's yeah, part. Yeah, you know we need like one of those. It'd be great if we have like they have they use during presidential debates. You know those meters when people when they're when, when they they're like yeah them, when they like them don't like yeah, them because she'd be in the red. Oh yeah, she would definitely be always in the red. be in red. But anyway, um, so the the audience would judge the acts by clapping or jeering, and these ones that they were they used the shepherd's crook. So, would it actually the, yank like you off the stage? The big cane, the yeah. crooked cane that they would yank you off the stage. And so, Arbuckle was singing and dancing uh, and doing some clowning around uh, during this um, uh, talent show. He saw the crook emerge from the wings of the of the of the stage, and to avoid it, he somersaulted into the orchestra pit. And because he was just obviously, you know, he was in a panic that he was going to get yanked off stage. The audience went wild. They loved it. He ended up winning the talent show contest, and he began his career in vaudeville. So that's how that's how he got started. So like he could do no wrong. He he, he screwed up, but the audience loved it. It's kind of like Donald Trump, I guess. <laughs> you know, the, the crazier you are, <laughs> yeah, the, the more people the, like the it. Polls, I, mean, I mean, you just get more popular. But anyway. In 1904, um, I guess he would have been about 17 then, uh, Sid Grauman, Grauman's Theater, invited uh, Arbuckle to sing at his new unique theater he had in San Francisco. And it began a long, uh, lifelong friendship between the two. Uh, He then joined a popular theater group touring the West Coast of the U.S., and um, also joined uh, later on joined a vaudeville troupe. So he, he was making a living doing this, and he soon became the main act. And uh, really, the group um, uh, took their show. Uh, he became the main character uh, of the group, kind of like you're the main character of the podcast. Uh, no, I, I don't. He, I, I like began, to try to keep my modesty. I, I, I know, but he began to shine and. In 1908, on August 6, 1908, uh, Arbuckle married actress Minta Durfee. Uh, Durfee now, had, it's unusual that he would marry a woman named Gurthy. Because he was fatty. Uh, Durfee. She, Durfee. Oh, he, Durfee. He, I'm sorry, yeah. Timmy. I thought you said Gurthy. No. But if she's Minty. Minty Durfee. <laughs> well, you, how'd you like to be known as Fatty Gurthy? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Um, Fatty got his name, by the way. He said people called him that in high school, but he he also got his name, and they used his name in, later on in the movies, kind of the, because he was obese. Um, I think he was a, 185 pounds when he was 12 years old. Holy. Uh, yeah, so he, was, he was huge. Uh, anyway, Dofi was an actress, and she had st- starred in early comedies, often with Arbuckle when he later on became a, a film star. Um, 
But they made it, they did make a strange couple in that Minty was short and petite, while Arbuckle, of course, was very tall and very obese. Um, Arbuckle will then join um, a, a Burbank stock vaudeville company, went on tour to China and Japan in early 1909. So, you know, he's, he's traveling around, he's making some money. He also began his uh, film career in July of 1909, uh, and he would appeal, appear, this is really early on in the film industry, and he would appear sporad- sporadically in films, shorts, until 1913, uh, moved, he moved briefly to Universal Pictures, became a star in those uh, Keystone Cops comedies. Yeah. The Keystone mm-hmm. Cops. He was earning uh, $3 a day, which is equivalent to about $72 today in you, today's dollars. $72 a day, that's, that's a little, little bit more than we're making here, Tim. Yeah, a lot more than <laughs> we're making doing this. Um, but he was working his way up to you know, the acting ranks and become a lead player and a director. Um, although his large size was undoubtedly part of his uh, co- uh, comic appeal, he was always very uh, self-conscious about his weight, and he refused to use it to get cheap glass. For example, he would not allow himself to get stuck in a bathtub or in a doorway or a chair, which you know would be a which probably happened to him. Probably did happen to him, but he wouldn't use that in his act. Again, he was the thing about it was he was a very talented singer. And mm-hmm. many felt that yeah. he, he chose the wrong career, that he should give up comedy and become a singer, which he never did. But uh, uh, his singing voice was supposed to have been just incredible. But he, he, he started his uh, film career in, in 1909. Um, and as I said earlier, despite his physical size, he was very agile and uh, uh, athletic. Um, his comedies were noted to be in fast pace. There was many like chase scenes and uh, you know falling uh, sight gags. So um, he was his favorite was the pie in the face. That was his favorite uh, routine, and of course that was used a lot in the silent era film era. Anyway, you you can never have too many pie in the face no, scenes. I mean, no, no. I don't care what the movie is, you know. Gone with the wind. If, if Rick if Butler right had at the end when yeah. she said, "I shall, I swear, as God is my witness, yeah. I will never go hungry again." If he'd have hit her with a pie, it would have been the perfect oh, ending. Oh man, he'd had a standing yeah. ovation. Instead of just saying, "Yeah, you Tomorrow's know, frankly, my dad. dear, I don't give a damn." Right. Rather, frankly, my dear, here you go, boom, and hit her with a pie. It would have been much better. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. You can never have too many pie to face these. But anyway. Um, Arbuckle at this point was becoming very popular with the audiences and they were flocking to see his movies. In 1914, uh, Paramount Pictures made the then unheard of offer to him of $1,000 a day. Now, this is in 1914 dollars. $1,000 a day plus 25% of all profits and complete artistic control to make movies. Now, that is, you know, an uh, incredible contract. The movies were so lucrative and popular that in 1918, um, they offered him a three-year, $3 million contract would be equivalent to a over $43 million today. Again, three-year contract worth the, today's dollars, $47 million. That, that's pretty good scratch. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. You eat a lot of food with that. <laughs> you, could, you could eat a lot of pie. Yeah, you can. 
Um, so by 1915, Arbuckle was at the height of his career. I mean, everything was going wonderful for him. By 1916, um, his weight and his heavy drinking, he was a bit of a crowser, was causing him some health problems. He got an infection in his leg and it became so severe that doctors at one point even considered amputation. Um, fortunately, Arbuckle was able to get it together. Uh, he kept his leg, he lost 80 pounds, and when he lost 80 pounds, he's got his weight down to 266. So, so he was up to 350 pounds. Yeah, yeah. But when, by doing that, um, he became addicted to painkiller uh, morphine. So he became addicted to morphine. Um, and this is probably back in the day before he even needed a prescription, I would imagine. Uh, but following his recovery from his leg uh, problems, he started his own film company called Communique. Um, so now not only is he an actor, comedian, he's now, uh, he owns his own film company. And um, they produce a lot of these comedy shorts that you would see at the movies in mm. the silent era. Um, but he got an offer, uh, uh, an offer from Paramount for $3 million, another offer in 1918 to make uh, 18 feature films. So he sold his uh, interest, his controlling interest into his company to Buster Keaton. Who went, who went on and uh, developed that company. Um, Arbuckle disliked his screen name. He did not like being referred to as Fatty. Um, that had been his nickname since school, and, and he just didn't like it. Uh, he said it was inevitable because, like I said, when he was 12 years old, he weighed 185 pounds. It was inevitable that he was going to get that nickname. But he really didn't like it, and he would discourage anyone from addressing him as Fatty off the screen. And when they did call him Fatty off the screen, his response was usually, I've got a name, you know. So he was a little, little touchy little about, touchy, yeah. little touchy about his uh, obesity. Um, so things are going well for, for Fatty. He's at the top of his game, but then um, the scandal happens, and the colonel's going to tell us about that. Yeah, and, you know, it's kind of interesting that you talk about, because Buster Keaton had his own scandal. These were protégés of his. And so did Charlie Chaplin. And Charlie Chaplin had his own. <clears throat> now, where Arbuckle gets into trouble, he had, he had had a pretty brutal film s- schedule. So he decides he's going to take some time off just a weekend or so. Go up to San Francisco with a couple friends. And I am going there next week. You're going to be up there next week? I'm going to be in San Francisco next week. Any young, attractive, or no, young, attractive, but any attractive women who are in the San Francisco area, email me. And and Timmy, you got to understand, Timmy young at heart, so you you don't have to be young, but you have to be able to keep up with Timmy. You got to be at least 25. You got to be at least 25, but you got to be able to keep up with Timmy because he got a lot lot of energy. Just kidding, everyone. Like the Energizer Bunny. Kind of just kidding. Not really, but... <laughs> well, if you're in San Francisco, give, give him a, a shout-out. Give me yeah. a shout-out. Put a, put a post I, on the page, and Timmy will find you. I love San Francisco. Beautiful city. But anyway, I've so... I've never fa- been there. I've never been oh, there. Oh, you have to. Been to there. Tijuana, been to San Diego, been to Los Angeles. Been to Tijuana several times. <laughs> yeah. uh, but San Francisco is a beautiful city, so Fatty goes, drives up the coast with a couple friends. He's got a couple friends, and they check into the St. Francis Hotel. I'm going to find that next week, if it's still there. I wonder if it is still there. You have, to, you have to get back with us. I am. Um, I'll do some research. Which one you're talking. Now they rent out three rooms. Um, <clears throat> they get the whole floor. Arbuckle and one guy's going to share a room. Another guy's going to share a room, and then tw- they rent out 1219, 1220, 1221. They're going to party. Yeah, 1220 is empty. It's going to be the party room. So they invite several women up to this suite. 
Now, during this carousing, um, this 30-year-old aspiring actress, and back in that day, 30 years old was getting a little long in the tooth, you know, to be an aspiring actress. I mean, these actresses was coming along. They was, you know, 17, 18 years old. They was, but... Her name was Virginia Rapay. I just want to uh, mention that there is a St. Francis Hotel down by the West, and it's on Union Square in San Francisco. I will check it out. Ask to rent one of the rooms. I might do that. Well, in the midst of this party, you got this this young woman, Virginia Rapay, and uh, they found her seriously ill in room 1219. And they, they get the hotel doctor who thought she was just drunk. You know, so he gave her some morphine to calm her. So she didn't even go to the hospital. That's my kind of doctor right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, just give him morphine. Yeah. Calm him down. Man. Um, give him some Benadryl. Give that, I, I would like for attention. him to be my primary physician, if I can find that guy. Yeah, but, you know, you get you get hooked on the morphine, and, and I just saw a, a, a thing for painkillers. Now they're prescribing drugs to... Because painkillers apparently block up your, your intestinal system. Yeah, because what you know what happens is it's a, they're painkillers, so they they numb your whole body, which includes your um, colon, your digestive, yeah. your whole digestive system. Right. Yeah, and it's so. But yeah. I'll take my chances and <laughs> take some extra fiber. You know what? I would dream. My dream would have been live like in eighteen hundreds when they had the. Um, the opium uh, dens. The opium dens. Yeah. I wanna. I wanna go to an opium den. Well, I have to say the colonel has always believed that he was born a little. He was born three hundred years after he should have been. He was supposed to be a pirate, but if you want to be an opium den, that's true. I, I just want to live in an opium den and never leave. I'll be happy. <laughs> why leave? He could just die there. I mean, why? Why I, leave? Just, if you know, you're on opium, I don't even think you get hungry. Put on a little Pink Floyd. <laughs> <Yeah. and laughs> what else are there? <laughs> what is there? So anyway, we have so. I forgot where I'm at. But anyway, Miss they're doing their carousing. Now Miss Rap Rapay, she gets sick. Now she had Doctor she, gives her morphine. Doctor gives her morphine. Now the one thing about this woman that you you get in here is uh she did she was not a person who took care of herself. You know, nowadays actresses they're at the treadmill, they're on the gym, they're doing, you know, keeping themselves. She fit. had kind of a rough history, didn't she? It was she did. She was a heavy drinker, um, and at thirty, you would have thought that she wouldn't even be able to be an aspiring actress. She sounds a little bit like Britney in that aspect of it. Yeah, but Britney still got that young glow yeah, well, to yeah, her. That's she's what's very, odd. She's very young. Yeah, and, but she's she got a little bit of a problem. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know that it's anonymous anymore because when you put put every drunken picture you have on Facebook and Instagram, you can't be alcoholics anonymous. You know. So she, and I don't even know if she alcoholic or not. She crazy drunken girl anonymous is what she is. She's young. She's young. But uh, but anyway, um, can you imagine if we had Facebook when we were in college? Oh, holy god, <laughs> holy god! But her her drinking habits, and you got to remember this is back in the bootleg era, you know, the prohibition era. Sure. So she's you know she's drinking a lot of this poor quality liquor, hooch. and it, yeah, hooch, and it gave her. And she developed a reputation for over-imbibing at parties. And then she would do something very weird, drunkenly tear at her clothes from the physical pain of being drunk. So she had, she also suffered from chronic cystitis um, that liquor just irritated dramatically. So by the time of the St. Francis party, 
her reproductive health was just shot. She'd had several abortions in the space of two, a couple years, um, and uh, abortion was illegal back then. So the quality of those. So people. she's either, as you said, running down to Mexico, or she's getting some back alley doctor. Right. <clears throat> and the aftercare is, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be very substandard. And she kept getting pregnant by the same director, Henry Lehrman, and I don't know why they wouldn't figure that out after a while. But <laughs> He kept hitting it. He, he did. And so they finally take her to the hospital. Um, now, here's where, one of, here's where the key player, and here's where the scandal starts, is that uh, at the hospital, Miss Rapay's companion at the party, Bambina Mardelmont, yeah, she was a told troublemaker. Her, told me, huh? She was a troublemaker. She was a trouble. Well, yeah, we'll get into what she did. Um, she told the doctor that, that Arbuckle had raped her friend. Now, the doctor examined Miss Rapay and found no evidence at all of rape. Now, Miss Rapay died the next day after a hospitalization of peritonitis. Now, that was caused by a ruptured bladder. And the bladder, that could have been cancer. could have been any number of things. Um, right. So Delmont then told the police. But the, well, theory, the theory was that because he was on top of her and his weight. Yeah, crushed her. Mm-hmm. So her manager, Rapay's manager, um, was a guy named Al Simnacker. He had a press conference and accused Arbuckle of using a piece of ice to simulate sex with her, which led to the injuries. Now, this turned into, I mean, by the time it was in the newspapers, it had evolved into being a bottle of Coca-Cola that he had. What they're saying is he actually raped this woman with a piece of ice. Then it turned into he raped her with a Coke bottle. Then it became a champagne bottle. And, and, it just and, got embellished. Yeah. We got to remember this was a time of yellow journalism in Hearst. I mean, Hearst played a big part in this, so... We just talked about him during the... Uh, when the podcast I did with Scott on um, Annie Oakley and how he had... A, uh, a woman had been arrested for cocaine, and she used the name Annie Oakley, and Hearst ran with the story. And back in those days, every city had multiple... <laughs> Uh, newspapers. Newspapers. So yeah. once they would just repeat what they found in other papers, so and embellish it, and like you said, and, and it was a period of yellow journalism where it, everything was sensationalized. So this went from he was raping her with a piece of ice to yeah. raping her with a coke bottle to a champagne bottle. And 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 witnesses actually testified. That what Arbuckle did was he rubbed ice on her stomach to try to ease her abdominal abdominal pain. Um, And Arbuckle denied any wrongdoing. And Delmont, this lady, she later made a statement incriminating him to the police in an attempt to try to extort money from Arbuckle's attorneys. Yeah, and she had a history of extorting people, I believe. Oh, a long history. And and now, you know, this—so what— and the winner she, in this she whole saw, thing... She saw an opportunity to make some money. Absolutely. And she'd done this earlier. Um, so the prosecutor takes this to the grand jury, and they he brings her in to testify, this, this mod lady. But at the first trial, he will not use her as a witness because then I'll get into what that. 
But the the big winner here, as we were talking about, was Hurst. And he was, I mean, he was just a rat son of a bitch. There's yeah. no way around it. And, and Hurst, this is a direct quote from him, that this scandal sold more newspapers than any event since the sinking of the RMS Lusitania. Yeah, he was known so. to exploit, you know, a lot of people believe that he, you know, that, that he had some involvement with the sinking of the USS Maine yeah. for the Spanish-American War, at least uh, capitalizing on it to sell newspapers. What do you, What would he say? You you, you provide the war. Yeah, you provide the photos, you I provide, provide the war. Yeah. Yeah. And he... Uh, so, so you know, this this just destroyed Arbuckle. You know, before the trial even started, he was destroyed. Um, you had morality groups; they were calling they were calling him for to be sentenced to be tried and sentenced to death. Studio executives ordered Arbuckle's friends in industry and actors um, whose career they were in charge of to publicly not speak up for him. Now, yeah. Charlie Chaplin, he was in England at this time, and he Charlie Chaplin by this time is a very powerful man. He's in England uh, probably with a 14-year-old girl. Um, yeah, he had his own. He had his own issues, but he wasn't scared of anybody there. They knew he couldn't do anything, and he's like, you know what? I know him to be a genial, easygoing type who would not harm a fly. Buster Keaton even said, you know, made one public statement in sports, said, I don't believe he could do it. Now, Buster got... Um, a reprimand from the studio where he worked. Yeah, this is a, I mean, you know, this is a time when the studios own the actors. And, and, oh, absolutely. And, and if they, they pretty much had to toe the company line, and they didn't, uh, they didn't want nothing, anything to do with scandal. Now, of course, today, scandal probably sells, well, you know, it does. sells more tickets than, than And, than you not. know, that, that was a quite, quite a scandalous era back there. If, mm-hmm. if, we were, if the things that were going on now, I mean, you think about, Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. That was a big scandal right. with Angelina Jolie. Right. There was nothing compared to what they was doing back then. But right. but they weren't you know they didn't, weren't putting that in the newspapers all the time. And right. a scandal like this, you know, I mean, it was, it was there was more. I mean, you know, the morality <clears throat> the morality was different. But when you really think about it, Timmy, when when you think about Hearst and what he's doing, is it any different? You know, I was thinking about this today. Is it any different? Than what we see today, I no, mean, because the what, what we're supposed to consider news, um, and, and it doesn't matter if you're left or right. You can use Fox, MSNBC interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Their first concern, the first priority that they're worried about, is what the ratings are, For sure. because it brings money in. Sure. Donald you Trump know. said something that needs no matter no matter what. You know, no matter what story you're going with, if Donald Trump says something stupid, that leads that's what to it's going to lead. Uh-huh. And you know, they they used to you know with local news, they always joke if it bleeds, it leads. Mm-hmm. You know, and that we grew up in a time when that was different. When when um, the yeah. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. At three stations. Yeah, three networks. Um, and you had uh, nightly news. And-, and they were not concerned with ratings. They were right. they were provided funding by the government. And they so, you know, they're. Sure. And they they did not sensationalize. And, and if you didn't have credibility, you didn't have anything. I mean, you think well, you think Walter Cronkite. I mean, uh, people tuned to him. They believed him more than they believed he was the most believable man in America. Yeah. Or, well, you had uh, Edward Murrow, who Edward you know, Murrow, you had sure. guys like that. And and I don't believe we have people like that yeah, today. That level of trust. And um, I no, think the last right. person. I I don't know. Maybe Peter Jennings. Um, maybe. Um, I don't know. You not know, Brian I, Williams. <clears throat> No, I, even Brian Williams, who you know, think is a trustworthy guy, but but anyway, the point being, you know, that that's a side note. I got a little carried off there, but you know, you think about what Hearst was doing; it's really not much different than what Rupert Murdoch's doing today. Right. Um, well, and like I said, <clears throat> you had every there was a lot of competition because every city there wasn't the internet. There, you know, every right. winning radio stations at this point. Every city had. You know, multiple newspapers. They were in competition yeah. with oh, each yeah. other, and um, and what they were doing to to Mr. Arbuckle here is they were portraying him as this lecher who used his weight to overpower these innocent girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in reality, he was a good natured man, and he was so shy with women that he was regarded by those who knew him as. And, and one person called him this the most chaste man in pictures. And you know, so mm-hmm. it. He really did not have this coming. Mm -hmm. His lifestyle did. But the newspapers, they whipped everybody up into such a frenzy that you had a a prosecutor out in San Francisco where this happened. Matthew Brady. Now, this Brady's in and um, and there ain't nothing worse than a politically ambitious prosecutor. That's true. Um, And and, and that's why I really think that should be an appointed office because— uh, prosecutors will often use uh, a story such as this. You know, facts be damned. If they can get, you know, if they can get some votes out of it, uh, high-profile cases like that. That's why I really think it should be a, a prosecutor should be an appointed office and not a an elective office. Well, we see it here. I mean, we have one of the most outspoken prosecutors you, you think you're going to see across the country, mm-hmm. locally in Hamilton County. Um, and a lot of lawyers think that that is, you know, something a prosecutor should not be doing. Now, a prosecutor, you know, it's, it's 
But anyway, again, there ain't nothing worse than a politically ambitious prosecutor. Um, and this guy, Brady, had planned to run for governor. Mm-hmm. So before trials, before anything, he's already out there making public pronouncements about his guilt. Um, he's pressuring witnesses to make false statements. And as I said, at first, he used Delmont, that, the lady, as a star witness during the indictment, which, you, you know, the indictment phase is fairly easy. Yeah. Um, they say but, you can indict a ham sandwich. Yeah, exactly. But he refused to, he would not put her on the stand in the first trial. Um, and she never did testify, uh, but... She was a questionable... She the was judge, a questionable character. The judge threatened Brady with the dismissal of the case because he would not put her on. Now, Delmont herself, she had a long criminal record. She had multiple convictions of racketeering, bigamy, fraud, and extortion, and was allegedly making a living by luring men into compromising positions and capturing them in photographs to be used as evidence in divorce proceedings. Yeah. So this woman, she was a criminal. Yeah, That's what she was. She and they did not want to get her on the stand to tell, because she was, at this point, she is the only person who's saying Fatty Arbuckle did anything right. wrong. Yeah. Um, and, well, and the manager. The manager's trying to get some money. Mm-hmm. So the defense, they also got a letter from Delmont admitting to a plan to extort payment from Arbuckle. So, in view of a constantly changing story, a testimony went to ended any chance of it going to trial. Now, ultimately, the judge found no evidence of rape. <clears throat> but after hearing testimony from one of the party guests, Ms. Zay Previn, she said that Repay told her, Roscoe hurt me. This was on her deathbed, not Previn's deathbed, but Ms. Repay's deathbed. She allegedly told her, Roscoe hurt me. And the judge decided that Arbuckle could be charged with first-degree murder. Brady... And, and that goes back to... We, we talked about this in the... In the, uh, the deathbed thing. Yeah, the deathbed thing. Now, this woman loaded up with morphine. She liable to say, <laughs> yeah. Kermit the Frog hurt me. Yeah, or she, in her mind, he's trying to help her. She is on morphine. Well, he may have hurt her. He may have pick, picked her up in the bed and laid her down wrong. And, right, you know, she right. got a sore back. But like you said, she was... Obviously, she was on morphine. He may have been trying to help her. She may have perceived it as he was trying to hurt her. It's, I mean, it's hard to tell. She could have been, that could have been anything, any and, number of I mean, things. It's, and, it's, and it's, it's hearsay. I mean, it's it's a, you yeah. know, it's, a, it's not something that she now, testified to. It was with what. Now, she, Brady originally wanted the, the death penalty. He wanted to, uh, wanted a trial. They indicted him. He was going to take him to trial. He wanted the death penalty. Um, but the judge said, no, he reduced it to manslaughter, which in this case would be woman slaughter. But yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so they, they're going to trial, and this is September 17th, 1921. And look how quickly the wheels of justice are turning here. I oh, mean, man, they did those days. They would have September 5th. They We're talking about September 5th is when this happened. Twelve days later, he's having his—he's arrested, arraigned, charged with manslaughter, um, and given bail after three weeks in jail. Now, the trial begins a month later in the city courthouse in San Francisco. Gavin McNabb, he is the, uh, he is the lawyer for Arbuckle. Mm-hmm. The principal witness is this Ms. Zay Pravon, who was a guest at the party, who said, who said, you know, heard the deathbed talk. And at the beginning of the trial, Arbuckle told his 
already a strange wife, meant to Durfee that he did not harm her pay. And she believed him, and she, she showed up in the courtroom to support him. Um, but public feeling was so negative that she was later shot at while entering the courthouse. His wife. Yeah, his wife was. She was shot at entering the courthouse. Now, Brady brings his first witness up. This is a lady named Betty Campbell. She's a model. Um, she attended the September 5th party, and she testified that she saw Arbuckle with a smile on his face hours after the rape, the alleged rape occurred. Another one, Grace Holson. She was a nurse. Well, that's a, that, what kind of evidence is that? You saw a smile. A smile on his face, exactly. You got Now you got a nurse who, t- and this, remember this one, Grace Holson. She's a nurse who testified that it was very likely that Arbuckle did rape Miss Repay and bruise her body in the process. And then here's another one. Dr. Edward Heinrich. Um, he did not invent the Heinrich maneuver. That was uh, I was biting my tongue. Yeah, he. Uh, that was uh, that was Joseph Heinrich. But anyway, he was a local criminologist who claimed that he found Arbuckle's fingerprints smeared with Rapay's blood on the door in room twelve nineteen. Dr. Arthur Beadsley, the hotel doctor testified that an external force, meaning a champagne bottle, uh, an exceptionally locked penis, whatever, may have damaged the bladder. So... Speculation. Complete speculation. Um, So, and, and... Now, Dr. Henry, Dr. Heinrich's claim to have found fingerprints was cast into doubt after McNabb, his lawyer, produced the St. Francis Hotel maid who testified that she had cleaned the room before the investigation even took place, and there was no blood on the bathroom floor. Okay, so there was so, no, no blood and no bloody, no yeah. bloody uh, fingerprints. So he just made that up. Just it made. just didn't happen. Dr. Beardsley admitted that Repay had never mentioned being assaulted while he treated her. Uh, McNabb's lawyer for, was able to further get Nurse Hutz Holton, the one I said to remember, to admit that the rupture of a bladder could have been a result of cancer and the bruises on her body could have been a result of some heavy-ass jewelry. I mean, she must have had some serious bling on that evening, but she could have been a result of the jewelry that she was just wearing. So um, during the defense stage of this trial, McNabb's calling all kinds of pathology experts in, and um, you know they're saying how it could have been ruptured and there was no external cause for the rupture. So... Finally, Arbuckle comes up to testify for himself, and he's pretty simple. He's direct. He's not flustered. His story was that Miss Repay, um, who he said he'd known for five or six years, came into the room around noon that day, and uh, that sometime afterwards, Miss May Tobb asked him for a ride into town. So he went into the room where Miss Repay was in to change clothes and discovered her vomiting in the toilet. So he said that she uh, told him that she felt ill and asked to lie down. And then he carried her into a bedroom. Now, that could have been the part where she said, Roscoe hurt me. If mm-hmm. her bladder and everything's messing up, mm-hmm. being carried is going to hurt. Anyway, when Arbuckle and a few of the guests reentered the room, they found Miss Repay on the floor doing that, doing that tearing of her clothing thing that she had done in the past. Right. Um, and going into violent convulsions. Now, to calm her down, they put her in a bathtub of cool water. Arbuckle and Fishback, one of the one of the guys that went with him, 
Um, they took her up to room 1227 and called the hotel manager and doctor. Dr. Claire said she was just drunk. And now Arbuckle and this Tob lady go into town. So that's what he's got to say. So they've heard all the evidence, everything else. And the jury comes back uh, five days of deadlock, 44 hours of deliberation here with a 10 to 2 not guilty verdict. So they had to declare a mistrial. Now, Arbuckle's attorneys, and this is it's kind of funny and interesting, really, later concentrated their attention on a woman named Helen Hubbard who had told the jury she would vote guilty until hell freezes over. Now, she refused to look at the exhibits, read transcripts. transcripts. She'd made up her mind in the courtroom. Here's where it's interesting. Her husband, this Hubbard lady who said, no matter what, he's guilty. All right. He was a lawyer who did business with the DA's office and was surprised that she wasn't even challenged when selected for the jury, jury pool. So she she's married to someone working at the DA's office. Working with the DA's office, who's a lawyer, and says, I can't believe she even got picked for the trial. So she had her mind made up even before the, the trial started. Yeah. Now, the second trial um, <clears throat> said that it was, it was basically the same as the first. Really, except... One of the key witnesses, Ms. Provone, Zay Perone, testified that Brady, this ambitious prosecutor, had forced her to lie. Now, another witness during the first trial, a security guard named Jesse Norgard, who worked at Culver City Studios where Arbuckle made his movies, testified that Arbuckle had once showed up at the studio and offered him a cash bribe in exchange for the key to Repay's room, dressing room. So he's going to this guard and say, let me have the key to her dressing room he wants in it. Yeah. Well, that looks bad. That looks bad. But he's um, Arbuckle is telling the security guard that he wanted to play a joke on the actress. Norgard says he refused and was given the key. But then during cross-examination, Norgard's question, his testimony's questioned when it's revealed that he was an ex-con who was charged with sexually assaulting an eight-year-old girl and was looking for a sentence reduction from Brady in exchange for this testimony. Okay, so he... So again, nothing worse than an ambitious prosecutor. I mean, he's... Another very questionable witness. Yeah, now the second trial discredited a lot of the evidence... That was in the first trial, his, you know, fingerprints mm-hmm. on the hotel bedroom door. And uh, Heinrich took back his earlier testimony um, about the fingerprint, ex- and he said it was likely faked. Um, the defense was so convinced that the, the prosecution had not even put up a case that Arbuckle didn't even testify. He mm-hmm. just said, you know, we'll let, let this stand is on its own. Right. You know, you're not compelled. Unfortunately, the jurors took this not testifying as a sign of something to hide. You know, that, that is always the, any type of uh, criminal um, trial. That's always the big question is whether or not you let the defendant testify. Because well, cause you're opening a can of worms. When you have, you know, the, the problem is, is that we all live lives that we do not want under a microscope. Right. I mean, I don't, it's, it's, unless you're Dottie Scott. You don't want your life examined too hard or right. too closely. I will I will say this, and I don't want to, you know, I know we have some young listeners occasionally, and 
I don't want to disillusion them, but even the colonel has made mistakes in I his can't past. I got a, I got a skeleton or two in my closet. So the, the it it is easy to uh, over in any cross examination to uh, bring up uh, details of the past or conflicting. Uh, elicit yeah. conflicting testimony. Well, and when you get on the stand, you don't know what he's liable to say. Uh, and at this point, the lawyers are sitting there thinking they haven't proven anything. They've backtracked on everything. I, this was, I it was in the 1920s, but you will seldom see in any major um, trial today any any um, uh, you know. Uh, famous uh, court case today, you'll seldom, the attorneys will seldom, it'll be seldom when they let the uh, defendant testify. There's yeah. just too many things that can There's go too many wrong. things that can go wrong, and it's it's very difficult. And now with all the evidence they can gather, it's, yeah. it's all DNA stuff and fiber evidence, and either they have it or they don't. Mm-hmm. If they have it, you're convicted. If they don't, you know. It's, it's hard to come out of it. Yeah, they, you know, you, all you can do is hurt yourself for the most part. Well, my uncle, who was a who was a police lieutenant, I have two of them, and my uncle uh, told me one time, "You are never going to help yourself by talking to the police, because all you can do is tell them something that's going to hurt you." <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and and the exact and, and the example he said was, um, he and and he had you know we're getting going down a rabbit hole here, but I'm going to go there anyway. He 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 had to investigate a lot of murders. He was a detective. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you know how many we caught by them trying to prove they were innocent? He said, if they would have kept their mouth shut, we could have never proven they were guilty. But what we could prove is that they were lying. Mm-hmm. You know, if if a police officer comes up to me and asks me, where were you on the night of Tuesday the 10th? And I say, I was here. That Who saw you there? Mm-hmm. Well, I was at home watching TV. You know, I was at home watching TV by myself. But if you say something, now you the burden of proof that you're telling the truth is on you. Mm-hmm. And it can easily be turned And it can apart. easily be turned around. And if you're going to lie about that, you'll lie about something else. Yeah. So they, 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 you're better off just to not say once, anything. Once you, the, yeah, the, 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 you know, the favorite thing for a prosecutor is to be able to put you in a position where they say, catch you misrepresenting something where they can say, well, are you, were you lying then or were you lying now? Exactly. And exactly. When are you lying? Yeah, your credibility is shot. Now this time, because he did not testify, even though the 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 evidence was overwhelmingly um, showed that he didn't do anything, they made a tactical error in not letting him on the stand, and, but they were still deadlocked. But this time it was a reverse. It was a 10 to 2 guilty verdict. Okay, so it, it was still uh, hung jury. Still hung jury. But uh, but they, they, this time the the jury was leaning toward conviction. Oh, very much so. And and now this just scared the hell out of his lawyers. They thought, okay, that was a tactical mistake. We ain't gonna do that again. Well, I mean, it just goes to show you how you can how a jury you get twelve different people. You never know what's gonna happen. Right, and you never know if you got you know six people that got. You know, very, I don't know, timid personalities and a couple dominant personalities. Um, But anyway, so this prosecutor, he ain't giving up. He ain't giving up at all. A lot of of cases are won or lost at the selection of the jury. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And and so now they got a third trial, Timmy. Third trial. Yeah, and, you know, that's a, can you imagine the stress involved going through three murder trials? 
by the time of this third one, his film had been banned. The newspapers had been filled with the past months with stories of Hollywood orgies, murder, sexual perversion. Uh, this Delmont lady, she tore in the country giving one-woman shows as the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle and lecturing people. Now, this is a woman with long criminal history lecturing people on the evils of Hollywood. So. This was this was before the theory of uh, in, um, any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> exactly. So this time the defense says, you know, we ain't taking any chances. They took a very very aggressive defense. They tore apart the prosecution's case with just really long and, and brutal and aggressive cross examinations of each witness. And he got finally McNabb got evidence in about Miss Rapay's very lurid past and her medical history that he could not get in the first time. And another hole was opened up Including in the case. the abortions. And the, the abortions, the drinking, the promiscuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing where they blew a big hole in the case was um, Zay Previn, a key witness. She was out of the country after <laughs> fleeing police custody and couldn't, she was wanted by the police for something else and couldn't testify. So she, she left Dodge. She got out yeah. of Dodge and uh, she wouldn't. So. so it doesn't look good when the witnesses against you are running from the police. Right, you know, right. so with the a first. A lot now, of questionable characters for the witnesses. What, you know, the, the only decent person in this whole case is Arbuckle. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the rest of them just some slimy rap bastards. <laughs> So Arbuckle testified, and, and his story was the same. And during the closing argument— So the third time he, te- he does testify. He takes a stand. Same thing he says in the first. But in the closing ones, McNabb just—because in the first trial, McNabb, his lawyer, didn't even make closing statements. Mm-hmm. He just sat there and said, they didn't even make a case for anything. I'm not getting—I didn't even justify, you know, mm-hmm. what they said. Well, he—, he um, this time he said, you know what, he just ripped them apart. He, he went through every flaw in the case from the very start, how District Attorney Brady fell for these outlandish, outlandish charges um, by Ms. Delmont, um, and who McNabb, and this really you know, kind of hits the nail on the head, the complaining witness who never witnessed, you know, because mm-hmm. I wouldn't put her on the stand. Right. So the jury began deliberations April 12th. It took six minutes to return with a unanimous not guilty. Five of those minutes was spent writing a formal statement of apology to Arbuckle for putting him through the whole ordeal. And the jury wrote him an apology. The jury did. It was a, it was a very dramatic move. Um, and the jury statement is read by the jury foreman stated. This is what the jury said. Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. We feel that also that it was not only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under under the evidence, for there was not the slightest proof adduced to connect him in any way with the commission of any crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believe. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Mr. Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free of all blame. 
Now, after they read this, the jury foreman walks over and personally hands it to him. And uh, Arbuckle kept this for the rest of his life. He treasured this. And then each jury, each juror came over and uh, shook his hand. And then the jurors asked, actually asked to get their pictures taken with him. Um, they selfies. Were so, yeah, selfies. They were the first selfies. So they were the first. Uh, but they. Wait, um, they recognized what a. Uh, just a they recognized what had happened to yeah. the poor man. And, and experts kind of now think that um, her bladder, Miss Rapay's bladder, that's what she really died of, mm-hmm. uh, the peritonitis from the bladder. They believe that it was a result of an abortion she might have had just a short time before that party. Unfortunately, her organs had been destroyed, and it was not possible to test to see if she had been pregnant recently. Now, the one thing Arbuckle was forced to plead guilty to was a, a violating the Volstead Act. For the alcohol. The alcohol for prohibition. Mm-hmm. He had to pay a $500, $500 fine. But Now, think about this. The man has done nothing. At the time of his acquittal, he owed his lawyers over $700,000. In today's dollars, that's almost $10 million in legal fees for these three. He had to sell his house, his car. I mean, he ended up, he didn't end up broke um, because he had had that. Success. Yeah, but even though he was charged of all of them, um, it killed his popularity among the general public. And, uh, well, hey, <clears throat> excuse me there. Will Hayes, who served as the head of this newly formed Motion Pictures Distributors and Producers of America censor board, cited Arbuckle as an example of the cited Arbuckle as an example of the poor morals in Hollywood. Now you got all these people who are just as seediest ass people you ever gonna meet. <laughs> the prosecutor, Hearst, everybody else. The only decent person in the whole damn story is Arbuckle. And they cite him is an example of poor morals. I think his, <clears throat> what he was guilty of was throwing a party, basically. Yeah, and and inviting the wrong person who's yeah. gonna who's gonna die. She, this woman was gonna die whether she was walking down the street or at that party, with no matter what she was gonna do. This guy also banned Arbuckle from ever working in movies again. Yeah. So yeah, he that, had to lift the the ban, but um. Yeah, but the principal effect of the <clears throat> trial was a. Uh, Arbuckle was basically shunned by Hollywood, and there was uh, even though the ban was lifted, um, there were no acting roles uh, coming his way. And not only that, the secondary effect of it was the archive, uh, archival history of his uh, films. They were they were destroyed. Um, all the films destro- uh, that starring Arbuckle were were destroyed. In November 1923, Minta, Minta Durfee, uh, Arbuckle's wife, filed for divorce. Um, the divorce was granted in January of 1924. They had been separated since 1921, uh, but Durfee always claimed that he was uh, innocent and she claimed he was the nicest man in the world, and they re- remained friends the rest of his life. Um, they did try to reconcile, um, but it just didn't work out. Arbuckle went on to remarry uh, Doris Dean in 18, uh, May 16, 1925. Um, he tried uh, filmmaking, but again, the industry was real resistant to distributing his pictures. 
Uh, so he was continued to be just uh, shunned even after his acquittal. Um, he began to drink more. Um, in uh, words of his first wife, uh, Roscoe, she is quoted, Roscoe only seemed to find solace in the comfort of a bottle. Buster Keaton attempted to help Arbuckle get, uh, by giving him some work in his films, and Arbuckle uh, wrote a short um, for Keaton called Daydreams in 1922. Um, he appeared in um, some shorts with uh, Buster Keaton and Rudolph Valentino and Douglas Fairbanks and Jackie Cogan, um, but uh, was never again the star that he once was. Um, he even went to do some directing under an alias of William, the alias of William Goodrich, which uh, was his uh, actually his father's um, first and middle name, William Goodrich Arbuckle. So, between 1924 and 1932, Arbuckle directed a number of comedy shorts under uh, the name William Goldrich, uh, but they were with lesser-known comics, and they they just didn't do very well. Uh, but finally, in 1932, Arbuckle signed a contract with Warner Brothers to star under his own name again in a series of six uh, two-reel comedies. And then, um, even though they were released here in the United States, uh, it, it starred uh, not only Arbuckle, but also Shrimp Howard from oh, yeah. Three Stooges. Uh, they were released here in the United States. They were very successful. Uh, but when the Warner Brothers attempted to um, release them in, in the United Kingdom, uh, the British Board of Film Censors cited the 10-year-old scandal and refused to grant them an exhibition certificate. So he couldn't, even though he was appearing in some shorts and, and scraping by a living, um, those were not, be, they were not allowed to be released anywhere but the United States. Uh, but on June 28th, 1933, it was a big day for Arbuckle. He signed with Warner Brothers again to make a feature-length film. So this was his, this was going to be his big comeback film. Um, on June 28th, 1933, he went out to, with his friends to celebrate his first wedding anniversary and this uh, signing of this uh, contract with uh, Warner Brothers for his first feature-length film in over 10 years. Uh, he said it was the best day of his life. Um, unfortunately, that evening he suffered a heart attack and lied day, uh, died later that night in his sleep. That was on January 29th, 1933. He was uh, 46 years old. Uh, his, by, his widow, Addie, requested that his body be cremated, uh, as was our, uh, Art Buckle's um, wish. Um, and for and his they had to build a big bonfire for him. <laughs> yeah, I did. For his contribution to the film industry, Roscoe Arbuckle has, now has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on Hollywood Boulevard. So, very long and sad story to one of the true giants. You know, it is. I mean, think about the irony of uh, this is the best day of my life. He finally gets his stuff back yeah. and drops over dead. Drops over dead of a heart attack. And, you know, at 46, you had to kind of see it coming, but... Um, yeah, and even when, you know, even he, he was in his 30s when he went through that trial, I can imagine the stress involved in that. Uh, someone who was yeah. a drinker, oh, yeah. overweight, um, 
you know, it, it had to, three murder trials had to take a toll. It would take a toll on anybody, but especially someone who has health problems to begin with. But at that time, 1933, you know, if you, they didn't have the Lipitor, they didn't have anything right. else. You was going to, you know, right. and he wasn't eating right. And Well, what they say, you can, uh, I think, uh, uh, what Eddie Murphy say, you can, says you can, uh, you can be, you can be old or you can be fat, but you can't be can't both. Can't be both. All right. <laughs> can't be both. <laughs> so, sad story, Fatty Arbuckle. Well, and, and hopefully, because, you know, when most people hear Fatty Arbuckle, what you think of is the guy who raped a woman. Yeah. If you know anything about it, so you yeah. think about the guy who the raped scandal, a woman with, sure. a, with a champagne bottle when, in fact, none of that occurred. No. Um, and, and, it, and, it, you know, the story reminds me much, very much of uh, uh, Sam Shepard. Mm-hmm. Because Sam Shepard later, um, now, years and years later, the DNA are showing that we can do DNA are showing that Sam Shepard was actually telling the truth, that there was a third person in that bedroom. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, I, it, 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 remind, you know, it reminds me sort of the McMartin uh, daycare. Uh, oh, yeah, the repress, or, or yeah. yeah. Where, where oh, that was just a, like a Salem witch hunt. I right, mean, not exactly. Just, and, you know. and you had these people's lives that were just totally destroyed on on faulty testimony or questionable testimony from or testimony from you know questionable witnesses. And well, and one thing that we have you know we, we know for sure you know we've seen over and over, and I don't think it's I can only speak to America. I can't say it's an American thing because. You know, it happens other places in the world, but um, because we have such freedom of the press and, and you know, things uh-huh. like that, we have uh, we have no problems tearing people apart regardless of the fact of whether they're innocent or guilty before yeah. we even know they're innocent or guilty. And, and I think it's especially true of celebrities. There's this, we like to, the press loves to build people up to tear them down. And what? Um, that was, you know, an early example of that. Um, you know, Timmy, my, uh, one of my, one of my favorite quotes, and you know, there's a musician I admire greatly, uh, probably the greatest songwriter in, in American history is Bruce Springsteen. And I've heard you mention that. There's a quote by John Lennon. That said, God help Bruce Springsteen when they decide to, te- they've made him a god, God help him when they decide to tear him down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, and that was John Lennon re- after what he had gone through with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and you'll see it, I guarantee you'll see it during these this, uh, during this election year. Um, right now it's, uh, you know, uh, Ben Carson is, is, Kind of gaining on Trump, and um, you have Marco Rubio. They all become at one point the flavor of the month. And as soon and as, as they're, soon as, as they're, the, at least you know what was the quote in? Um, oh, what was uh, primary callers? Where the, the quote? I think it was uh, the media giveth and the media taketh Take it away. away. And uh, you'll certainly see that as we go through this cycle. That was certainly the case with uh, Fatty Arbuckle, an early example of that where a man's life was just totally destroyed by uh, an unfortunate situation that he was just uh, around and people trying to profit from it. So uh, kind of a sad story, a sad note, but an interesting and cautionary tale. A cautionary tale. Do not get, uh, do not, 
really, once you once you uh, become too famous, nothing good can happen to you. So when I go to San Francisco, I'm only getting one hotel room. I'm not. Don't gonna, get three. I'm not. Gonna Don't get, get three. one for the hookers. And one for your friends. I, well, Get one hotel room. Well, sometimes the hooker and friends are one and the same. But you only need one room. <laughs> exactly. You don't need three. Anytime, nothing good can happen of renting more than one hotel room. <laughs> yeah, you're I probably mean, right. The only time that works is when you got your three kids with you and you say, I'm tired of dealing with these little urchins and I'm putting them in one room and me and the missus are staying in the other or me and Rudy are staying in the other room. But that's the only time it works out. You know, there's some weird stuff that happens in hotel rooms. I mean, not just the sexual stuff. I mean, there's a lot of unsolved murders and stuff that happens. I mean, you know, I was just reading about Bob Crane. Uh, yeah. Um, or I believe you just posted yeah, something on the Facebook, like, uh, on the History Dweeb's Facebook about Bob Crane. Yeah. I mean, just hotels are... Uh, devil's workshop. They are the devil's play thing. They're yeah. the devil's playground. Yeah, they are. And that's why the colonel... I know people all over the country, and when I got to stay, I just call up one of my friends See, and say, "Can I stay above so you your garage?" You do a lot of couch surfing. I I do not mind sleeping in my car in that driveway. <laughs> I do not. I'm sure bad things happen at rest stops. <laughs> Colonel, what can people find us? You can look. The best place to find us is on Facebook, and you can follow the links there. Do we have a permanent link to iTunes on Facebook? Uh, no, but you can just search for us on iTunes. Search for us. Go on History iTunes. Dweebs. Search for History Dweebs. Um, we really, as we said earlier, and not to belabor a point, and you know what? You know what's been nice about today. Speaking of belabor and a point, the devil hasn't been here to beat that dead horse the whole time. No, well, you know she's in that home incarceration thing. And yeah. You know, I don't know if she'll be out before our next podcast or not. Probably. Oh, you know her husband just got to be pulling his hat. Oh, I, yeah. I, yeah. I'm sure he's getting the best uh, attorneys in the world. To, oh, yeah, to get her released. Or to get her convicted. One or, Wait, the, other. One or the other. Put her in jail or let her free, <laughs> yeah. but don't keep her here. Yeah, you know, she, she won't be too bad if you have that plexiglass between you, you know? If she could talk to you on the phone. Yeah. But, you know, she got that hoppy voice. Yeah. She got that hoppy screech that she uses. She would look good in orange, Joe. She would look good in orange. She would look good in orange. Yeah. she got the hair to match it. So, uh, Brandy, we hope you're released soon. Uh, If not, we'll certainly come and visit you, maybe put a few dollars on your commissary. And, uh, Brittany, you keep, uh, you know, one day at a time. One day at a time, Brittany. It's... You know, she was so close to having that one-week chip, yeah. and, then, and then Friday came. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Friday will get you every time. Yeah, well, she had the three-day chip, and then Friday came. Let's say a shout-out to Knut. And Knut, Storm. how you doing? Knut and Storm. And Storm over there in Norway. Uh, thank you for continuing to listen. Yeah, I imagine the weather's getting a little bit chillier up there yeah. now. Send us some pictures when it starts to snow. Um, for everyone, uh, check us out on Facebook. We got a lot of interesting stuff out there. Leave us some comments. Um, leave us comment. Uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you all again real soon on History Week. Thank you for listening. Bye bye, everyone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.